It's certainly good for us to be able to assemble this Sunday afternoon to do so in the confines of a comfortable and peaceful place as this one is. Thankful that we can serve the God of heaven who has made us and made this possible. And certainly we're thankful for the presence of each and every individual tonight. We continue a series of lessons this evening, one on the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's lesson five in that series. So far, this opening slide will be just a very quick attempt. A quick attempt to review somewhat of the first things we've seen, but we had an initial lesson in which we reflected upon the fact the Holy Spirit is a divine person. It should not be that we consider the Holy Spirit as merely an influence or a force or some kind of emotional response. Jesus referred to Him as a He. He's a divine personality. And therefore, as we reflected upon that, we learned much about how we should appreciate and view the Holy Spirit. But the second lesson was one in which we gave thought to the Holy Spirit's work both in creation and in revelation. And we saw that the Word of God testifies rather deeply from Genesis chapter 1 onward to the work of the Holy Spirit in that way. Lesson number three, as you can see, dealt with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And although there has been much confusion about that, the Word of God expressly determines Two instances of that have occurred, and it does not occur any longer today. Lesson number four was about the gift of the Holy Spirit. We used Acts 2 verse 38 as the descriptive matter for our consideration. And as we referred to that, we learned rather interestingly that much about that will actually lead into the lesson tonight. The word gift of the Holy Spirit as it occurs in that verse is certainly a very interesting and useful piece of information. But it does beg this question. As you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, what about the various gifts of the Holy Spirit as they are referenced in the New Testament? Isn't it interesting the word gift, Peter used it as singular in Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift, singular, of the Holy Spirit. But later on in texts like what was read a moment ago, we notice there that it refers, Brother Colonel noted for us, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Is there a difference? Let's devote the lesson tonight then to a reflection on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, giving some thought to what it is that's said about them and how you and I are going to be able to, in fact, appreciate great things about it. The gifts of the Spirit. And notice again the plural word gifts. Now this slide is in many ways a bit of a rehearsal or at least a recollection of some of the things we saw last time, but it'll be a springboard for some of what we'll continue to see even in the lesson tonight. You'll notice at the top, the first part then of Acts 2.38, you and I would quickly say, is a consideration, a set of ideas that are needful for you and me today. Every person who responds to the gospel must repent and be baptized. Every believer, no matter what the continent, no matter what the placement in life, that is expected of everyone. But as we noted the latter part of the verse, ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That was a miraculous consideration under view for those individuals living in the first century. That is to say, the hands of an apostle 
would be able to be laid upon those individuals at that time. And the impartation then of those miraculous measures would be a possibility. That is to say, it would occur in that way. I've tried to just simply make note of that with you on that slide. It's very important we make that distinction. In other words, miraculous measures are not available today. We'll have more to say about that in just a minute. But for right now, about the middle of that slide, isn't it interesting that in regard to these miraculous measures, there are from time to time are discussions even today about the degree to which sometimes at least some certain aspects of that might be available. Let's be very sure we understand what that, what that identifies. Please be turning to 1 Corinthians 12. We will devote much of our attention to some of the information shared with us by, inspired, by the inspired writer Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. As you're turning to that, I'd like to close this slide and invite you to notice early on in that chapter, two statements are rather dramatically made. First of all, beginning in verse 4. Now, there are diversities of gifts. Please note the plural, diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. Paul was quick to point out to the church in Corinth that although there are differing manifestations and differing particulars of these spiritual gifts, there's one Spirit behind them, one Holy Spirit behind each of them. Let's read onward. Verse 5, And there are differences of administrations but the same Lord. And there are different diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. Verse 7, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. It might be interesting for you and me to observe then that these gifts are said in verse 7 to be the explicit manifestation of the Spirit. That word manifestation carries the thought, the idea of bringing to fruition, bringing to expression, if you please. And so here, the Spirit in the first century was presenting these spiritual gifts as the means whereby the work was to be carried on. As we turn the slide and proceed to the next, verse 11 perhaps is a critical matter for you and me to note together. Verse 11 of the same chapter. But all these, that's the various spiritual gifts, worketh that one and the selfsame Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. You and I should note then that as often as we have described those spiritual gifts and the miraculous features of them, one feature that sometimes perhaps we haven't emphasized quite so much, who got which one? That is to say, who was able, say, to have the gift of tongues? Or who had the gift of healing? Or who had the gift of interpretation of tongues? And the list goes on. And yet in this passage it says, it was the Spirit who determined who got which one. That would seem to suggest then that when an apostle laid his hands on an individual who had recently perhaps obeyed the gospel, it was the Holy Spirit who determined which individual got which gift. For the Spirit knew what that congregation perhaps needed the most. And the Spirit understood what particular gift might ultimately lead to the greatest benefit for the work of the Lord in that particular locality. Whatever the reasoning may have been, 
We are specifically told in verse 11, it was the Spirit dividing to each one severally as He will. With that said, notice, then the church in Corinth faced a rather serious problem. Once the gifts, of course, were made available, they were under the impression that certain gifts were better than others. And isn't it interesting that they perceived that the gift of tongues was the best of all. They wanted to be able to speak with tongues, and they seemingly relished in the thought of it. In chapter 14 of this same book, Paul had much to say about their perception of that and how that they were wrong in that perception. Perhaps two more things. In verse number 12 of 1 Corinthians 14, it says, Even so ye, forasmuch as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. The entire purpose of those miraculous gifts, the manner in which they were delivered, the manner in which they were to be utilized, the features surrounding their employment, all of it was to ultimately edify the body of Christ. There was no sense in which the gifts were given to glorify the name of a person, to build up and elevate the position of any individual in that congregation. But rather it was for the edifying of the body, the edifying of the church. And that error was one, sadly, that had crept into the congregation at Rome. I'm sorry, at Corinth. So much so that Paul would make this statement in verse number 19. Yet in the church I had rather speak five words with my understanding, that by my voice I might teach others also than ten thousand words in an unknown tongue. Now the church at Corinth again loved, it would seem, at least many of them, the thought of speaking in tongues. It thrilled them. It was apparently to them a sign such that it was a signal that they were right with God. But what they failed to appreciate is what they were speaking if there were no interpreter present, would not benefit anybody there. No one would be benefited by such a presentation. For that reason, Paul said, I'd rather speak five words in a tongue that others understand, and that they might be edified thereby, than ten thousand words in a tongue that no one understands. When you and I keep that in mind, isn't that an impressive lesson about, again, our talents, our capabilities that are provided to us today? Now, it's true they aren't miraculous. None of us have access to that. But isn't it impressive how that we're admonished to be those who utilize our capabilities in the service to the Master? As we close that slide, those spiritual gifts then, as we've often said, miraculous in nature, were imparted by the laying on of the hands of an apostle. At this point, as we close that slide, let's make one final thought. I know we mentioned it in passing last week, but let us keep in mind the thought that the miraculous gifts have ceased. Chapter 13, which is right in the midst of this presentation, points it out like this. Beginning in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 13, Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, note, prophecies, they shall fail. That word fail in the original language literally means to cease, to be done away with, to no longer be accessible. The verse goes on. 
whether there be tongues, now that's the miraculous capabilities of tongues, whether there be tongues, they shall cease. And finally, whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Paul listed three things. He made mention of tongues, he made mention of prophecy, he made mention of knowledge. And he specifically asserted that all of them would cease, they would fail, they would be done away. It is in that regard a number of questions arise. To this point, I haven't read chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. This is the one Brother Colonel read earlier. Let's now revisit it. Read it in the context in which it appears and use it to consume our study the remainder of our time tonight. Beginning in verse 7, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. Paul gave us an inspired listing of seven spiritual gifts. I'm sorry, nine spiritual gifts. And as these nine gifts are listed, he has tabulated them for us. And may I suggest that it would behoove us to reflect somewhat upon how these will then appear. And let's start to look at them one by one. These individual miraculous gifts. The first one listed in verse number 8. For to one, he says, so not everyone had every one of these gifts. Notice they were imparted individually. One might have had the gift of tongues, and another the gift of healing, and another the gift of interpretation of tongues. But the very first gift listed, it says, is wisdom. Something about wisdom then constituted a miraculous measure. Here are some considerations you and I might benefit from as we ponder what might this have been. First, let's define the word wisdom. As that word is employed in the Word of God, it frequently, it seems, has with it the notion, the usage of knowledge in such a way that it generates correct behavior. The employment of knowledge in such a way that it involves insight and understanding. It has well been identified that wisdom has, it seems, that idea, that consideration such that it has a sense or determines how a certain course of action will pursue, how it will end up. Now, you and I have known many individuals, perhaps those that are older, who seemingly had a keen development of wisdom. They knew how a course of action would work out, and they knew that it was not going to work out good. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of some of that advice from an older person that a certain kind of action was just not going to turn out well in your life. May I say, this is not just common sense. It was a miraculous measure, this thing known as wisdom that began this list. If you'd like, turn back to Acts chapter 6. Perhaps we have here an express example of it. As you and I come to Acts chapter 6, that chapter, the next one, often revolved around the activities of a man named Stephen. In particular, could I invite you to note this, beginning in verse number 8. 
Acts 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. So we've already learned then that here was a gentleman named Stephen, and that he had been equipped with those matters such that he could accomplish wonderful things for the cause of Christ in that locale. But now let's go on and read verse number 9. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians, and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. So here there arose groups of people, and they opposed what Stephen preached. They, in fact, argued with him. They presented strong cases against what he taught. Now verse 10, And they were not able to resist what? The wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. So there were individuals who, rather prominent it would seem, and powerful in their opposition to what Stephen preached, but yet regardless of their capability, they were not able to resist his wisdom. Stephen, it seems, had a rather remarkable degree of wisdom, biblically, scripturally, understanding how things could be woven together and taught in complete and perfect harmony and truth. And they weren't able to resist it. Isn't that impressive? Not only that, could I invite you to note, every one of us are admonished to pursue and seek wisdom. Now again, may I say, we'll never have the miraculous measure Stephen did. But every one of us should, by God, pursue that wisdom. Look at some of these verses. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. James 1 verse 5. In the Old Testament, Proverbs 4, verse 7, we're told, Seek wisdom. With all you're getting, seek wisdom. Now that's as applicable today as it ever was. I would like to point out then that although we don't have the miraculous measure, we are commanded by God to pursue the wisdom that's available from Him that among other things, of course, is available directly from the Word of God. But keeping this miraculous matter of wisdom in mind, look at the next one. We also are told in that same verse that there was something to be said about knowledge. To another, the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. Knowledge. Don't you find it interesting? The Corinthians, it seems, weren't excited about the gift of knowledge when I suppose many of us likely would be. The thought that a miraculous and supernatural measure of knowledge would be given and you'd never have to study for it. You'd never have to dig deeply to ascertain it. It would be given to you. Don't you find it amazing the Corinthians didn't seem thrilled by that one? As I said, I believe many of us would be. Consider the matter of knowledge. That word literally means the possession of information. It was miraculously provided and given. Let me be quick to say that the Word of God admonishes all of us to strive after knowledge, but may I again say it'll never be the supernatural variety. Jesus said, "Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free." John eight thirty two. Peter wrote these words in Second Peter one verse five, and giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge. Therefore, we must give diligence to add knowledge to ourselves. It's not given to us miraculously anymore. 
As you close that slide with me, though, notice. In Galatians 1 verse 12, Paul had access to the miraculous measure. Look at the reading of that verse with me. Galatians chapter 1 verse number 12. As Paul began that letter to the Galatian brethren, he pointed out to them that in terms of his preaching, the following statement was true. For I neither received it of man. What's the it? The doctrine he was preaching. He says, I didn't receive it of man, neither was I taught it, but I, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. The degree of knowledge that Paul had, complete and powerful and thorough and exactly on cue with heaven's revelation, he says the Lord gave it to him. Today, you and I don't receive it that way. Is there any wonder that we're told in 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God. That means give diligence to show yourself approved to God, and it'll come as you dig deeply into the Word of God, inquiring into its statements and studying its texts and piecing together those truths as we rightly divide the Word of Truth. As we've looked at the first two, we have found it amazing to reflect upon knowledge and wisdom. At this point, place yourself that in the ancient city of Corinth, in that church, there would have been individuals on whom an apostle's hands had been laid and they had supernatural knowledge and another had supernatural wisdom. But that wasn't the only two available. Let's look at number three. The third one in the list is written in words like this. To another, verse 9, faith. Faith. There was something to be noted about a supernatural and divine measure of faith. Now some of these comments perhaps are in order. May we be quick to say, all of us are demanded of God to be people of faith. I'm sure one of the, our favorite verses in Hebrews eleven six reads like this, But without faith it's impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. We must be individuals who are those of faith. But with that in mind, what about a miraculous measure? I wonder what that would have been. Well, perhaps this comment is in order. Look over one chapter to chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, and let's look at verse 2. I would suggest that maybe here is a wonderful description of a supernatural measure of faith. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. As Paul by deliverance made that statement, he referred to prophecies and he also mentioned faith and said, even if I have all of it, so that I could remove mountains. Do you or I have enough faith, a sufficient measure of it that we to a mountain could in fact command it to be moved and it would be cast into the sea? We know none of us are able to do that. And our degree of faith falls short of that reality. It would seem in Matthew 17 another reference to something like this occurs. Again, to a supernatural measure of faith. 
It was Jesus speaking on that occasion, and He spoke these unforgettable words in Matthew 17, verse number 20. And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief, that literally means your little faith, for verily I say unto you, If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible for you. The disciples had asked the Master, Why couldn't we cast out the unclean spirit? Why couldn't we, in fact, do this thing? And Jesus said, It's your little faith. If you had faith, even as that of a mustard seed, you'd be able to say to this mountain. But may I say that as we give thought to it, notice, here was a supernatural measure. So there might well have been those in Corinth who had a supernatural measure of faith. Their bedrock and strong presentation of it would have been remarkable to say the least. Although you and I today are admonished to be those of faith, faith won't come that way. May we never forget, faith today comes in one way. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. Therefore, we have to be those of the book. That's what will develop our faith. That's how ours will grow and mature. What about number four? What's the, first, the fourth element in his list? Verse 9 says, "...to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing." by the same Spirit. You'll notice on that slide, there were those in the first century who with the laying on of an apostle's hands would have had the capability of healing other people. Healing those that were ill or those that were sick or those that were in some way out of sorts with regard to their health. Healing. All of us are well aware this one has remained a matter of prominence, of course, throughout the ages. There are still those today, the so-called faith healers, who claim to have this capability. And if you watch some of the things on television, you'll see exposition supposedly where someone who maybe was lame or who maybe was blind or who maybe in, had some other very serious ailment. And right there on the spot, they supposedly are healed. The gifts of healing? Look at some of these thoughts about it. First of all, this was real. There were those who had it. In Acts 9, verses 32 and following, you and I remember well that Peter had it. Notice what took place on that unforgettable occasion. Acts chapter 9, verse number 32. There, I'll begin reading in verse number 33. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas, which had kept his bed eight years and was sick of the palsy. Here was a man that had been paralyzed eight years. His name was Aeneas. And the next verse says, And Peter said unto him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. Arise and make thy bed. And he arose immediately. Can you imagine having witnessed that? Here was a gentleman, and you knew for years he had been an invalid. He had been paralyzed. Medical science was able to do nothing about it. And yet here was a servant of a man he calls Jesus Christ, and Peter says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ has made you whole. And instantly the man gets up and walks. Immediately his paralysis is gone. The gift of healing. It would have been impressive to say the least. 
Another example from the same book in Acts 14.8. Here on the first missionary journey, Paul had this capability. It was such that in that verse, we remember it was on that missionary journey. He arrives at the island and there, of course, there's a great deal of healing of various others that was done. Later in Acts 28, verses 7 and following, Publius, a man well known on the island, he was healed again by Paul. If we just pause a moment at that point, you might regard the matter of healing in a remarkable fashion as one that would be an instant sign and wonder for the cause of Jesus Christ. Is it any wonder that many who were ill were brought to the feet of an apostle? Brought to the feet of one who was able to heal them. All of that leads me to one final comment. There seems to be a rather notable misunderstanding about the gift of healing. Have you ever recognized the fact that not every sick person in the Bible was healed? You might want to ponder that a moment. Not every individual that was sick was healed. I would mention a few like this one. What about Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, 23? Paul directly told him, Drink no longer water, but take a little wine for thy stomach's sake. Why, did, why didn't Paul heal Timothy's ailing stomach? Interesting, isn't it? What about another one? Trophimus in 2 Timothy 4.20. Here was one. Paul said, I left him sick at, at Ephesus. Why didn't Paul heal him before he left Ephesus? Interesting, isn't it? Maybe another one. Epaphroditus in Philippians 2.25. Here was a man nearly to the point of death. And Paul didn't heal him either. Maybe you and I should appreciate the fact then that the usage of healing the usage of that spiritual gift was not arbitrary and done on just any and every one. I might suggest that today, even if such a thing were possible, you wouldn't be able to just go and empty Cookville Regional Medical Center. You wouldn't be able to go and just empty a hospital. Notice that these individuals who possess those gifts were directed in such a way they were utilized to direct the attention and the glory to the God of heaven. In other words, the gifts as we're about to see shortly. Hebrews chapter 2 reads it like this. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with divers miracles and gifts, there's our word, of the Holy Spirit. So even the healing capability, you notice, was done to authenticate the Word of God. It was done to authenticate the message from heaven. It wasn't indiscriminately done just to heal sick people. It was done with a purpose behind it. It was done, again, to carry out the message of heaven. Our study of healing brings us to number five. The word that is used in 1 Corinthians 12 is simply said to be miracles. To another, verse 10, 
the working of miracles. Now, so far we've noted wisdom and we've noted knowledge and we've noted faith and we've noted healing. What else is there? I wonder what might be included in this reference to miracles. Well, there could be many, I suppose, that would easily be presented. I'll just simply offer a couple and maybe at another occasion we can perhaps brainstorm on additional ones. May I suggest the raising of the dead? Now, you'll notice that would be different, at least in some ways, than just healing. If a person had already passed away, then to be able to raise that individual back to life, we know Paul could do that. You might recall that during one of his sermons, he preached long into the night in Acts 20, verse 7, and a fellow fell from the third floor and died. Paul went down and took him up, brought him back to life. Acts 20, verses 8 and following. Notice again the amazing character of raising the dead. Today, wouldn't it be something that would draw attention to Jesus if you were able to, say, proceed to a casket somewhere and say, I'd like to share with you the name of Jesus. I represent Him. He is the presenter of the truth. And in order to authenticate His message, I'd like to lay my hands or pronounce something over your dear departed loved one and bring that person back to life. Wouldn't that have been a message that this person was really from heaven? That this person really did have access to the truth? Surely in light of that thought, we close that slide with Mark 16, verse number 18. Jesus, in fact, had stated some examples of what would fall, it would seem to me, under this category. In the closing paragraph of the Gospel according to Mark, Mark 16, verse number 18. It says, They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. So, the taking up of a poisonous snake, and even if you're bitten, it wouldn't hurt you. And it says, drinking of things that might be deadly. So first century Christians who might well be in positions whereby they would be involved in these sorts of things, they had access to matters such that they would not be hurt or harmed by these things. That would be examples of the miracles. Let's look at number six. The next one on the list is called prophecy. 1 Corinthians 12, again, verse number 9 and 10. Verse 10 specifically says, to another prophecy. Prophecy was a rather amazing spiritual gift. I've already mentioned the Corinthians, it seems, loved the thought of tongues. In verse 2 of chapter 14, Paul said this, For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the Spirit he speaketh mysteries. He that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. Paul lifted high the gift of prophecy. He, in fact, encouraged it. One of the last things to notice was the grandeur with which Paul considered the loveliness of prophecy. Let's speak about it briefly. What do we mean by the gift of prophecy? Literally, it might be defined as follows. 
It was a discourse emanating from divine inspiration and declaring the purposes of God. So an individual would be able to stand before a group and proclaim unerringly and with absolute conviction and truth the will of heaven. Now that gains great prominence when we remember this was before they had the completed Bible. The Bible hadn't been finished yet. And yet there would be those who could speak the inerrant Word of God, to speak it perfectly and without mistake, to speak it with all the glory that would be rightly attached to it. Surely in that light, you and I might recall the Old Testament prophets. Men like Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah and so many of the others who could preach with boldness and with confidence and with assurance and preach a magnificent and truthful message from heaven. We certainly can give thought to the existence of those with that capability even in the days of the Corinthian church. The next gift, number seven, Paul describes it as the discerning of spirits. How interesting that one surely must have been, the discerning of spirits. I've described it like this, the ability to identify and expose false prophets. Remember, there were those who would stand and claim to be a prophet of God. But anyone could make that claim, I suppose. But what if there were someone in the audience who had this capability of discerning spirits who could immediately know that man is false. What he says is not from heaven. That would have been such a powerful thing to observe and to note. The exposing of false prophets and also the identification of of true spirits leads me to invite you to notice the example in Acts chapter 5. Haven't you been amazed as you reflected on the scene of Ananias and Sapphira? Here was a husband and wife who sold some property and gave the money, and they made a claim. How did Peter know they were lying? May I suggest it would seem Peter had the capability of discerning spirits. He knew that, and he had been informed by God that they were not telling the truth. They were liars, and that cost them their lives. As I return to some of the things we use at the beginning of the lesson, you and I are too commanded to discern spirits, but we don't have access to the miraculous measure like they did. 1 John 4, 1 reads it like this, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they be of God, for many false prophets are going out into the world. You and I have one standard by which we can determine what's true and false, and it's this book. It's the Bible we have. We can use it to determine if someone is telling spiritual truth or not. As we get near the close of our list, number eight, let's turn to that one. The gift of tongues. Verse number 10. And to another, divers kinds of tongues. It basically means this. It was the capability of speaking in languages that had never been studied. To speak in languages that were not native or had never been learned. To speak in tongues was not nonsensical gibberish. It was not merely a presentation of some kind of sounds that had no meaning to it. And today, 
when you and I reflect upon the nature of these tongues, may we never forget the Bible teaches that they were communicative. In other words, there were those who did understand what was being spoken. Acts 2 verse 4, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit was poured out on the apostles in what we call the baptismal measure, and they were able to speak in other, lang other languages they had never learned. As another example, in Acts chapter 10 verse 46, perhaps in a final way in regard to that, 1 Corinthians 14 2, which we read a moment ago, identifies these tongues and the utility of helping them to share and spread the message of the Word of God. Number nine is the only one left. It is described as the interpretation of tongues. As you and I noticed, so someone was able to speak in these tongues, but someone else had the ability to interpret it. And Paul would later say in chapter 14, if there's no interpreter present, then the one with the tongues does not need to be speaking. Isn't that interesting? That means they were under the, those gifts were under the control of the, of the individuals. In other words, you didn't go into some ecstatic kind of movement and you were forced to speak it. You could stay quiet if that's what you needed to do. And so as we close that list... What a wonderful thing it is to reflect on the early way in which the Holy Spirit prompted the growth and the development of the church, equipping individuals with these kinds of things. They were not to last permanently. Chapter 13 says that when the thing which was perfect, which is the Bible, was come, these were going to pass away. And so when the last apostle died, and the last person on whom an apostle had laid his hands died... And there was no more of these. They ceased forever. And today we have something better. We have the Word of God. As we close this list and proceed to our conclusion, we've looked at nine spiritual gifts, and they will prepare us for the next element in our study. And so we'll come to number six next time and look at another facet, another feature of the Holy Spirit in our study. Tonight, may we offer an invitation. If there's anyone present and your life is not as it ought to be, maybe you've never become a Christian, you to this point are an alien sinner, you need to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. As you do that, you must follow the things of the Bible. Believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If you have become a Christian at some former time but are not faithful tonight, you realize the Lord wants you back at His side, faithful and dedicated to Him. And if we could pray to God on your behalf as you repent and confess those things, we would be happy to do it. If we could be of help to anyone at this moment, we urge you to come, we invite you to come, while together we stand and while we sing.